0: We're a little short today due to Memorial Holiday, but um, I'm sort of relieved about that actually in light of the, the text I'm preaching today. You can open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. It is easily the most difficult section in all of this epistle. Paul wrote of Peter in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Verse 15, talking about how regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And then, then Peter writes of Paul, "...just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, It's also in all his letters, speaking them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand." And now Peter is returning the favor by speaking some things that are hard to understand. Um, I want to read for you the testimony of some of the commentators that I read on this passage. One commentator said this, This is the most troublesome section in Peter's entire first letter. In fact, it's one of the most thorniest in the whole New Testament. Another one says, We are here face to face with one of the most difficult passages, not only in Peter's letter, but in the whole Test New Testament, and if we are to grasp what it means, we must follow Peter's own advice and gird up the loins of our mind to study it. Referring back to 1 Peter 1.13. One, another commentator says, These verses present the most difficult and controversial problems in the letter. And I simply say, with all these things, I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, in many ways, I would want to just skip over verses 19 through 22 and proceed on to chapter 4 because they're so difficult. But that's you know that's not the spirit of exposition. The spirit of exposition is we leave no stone unturned. We look at every phrase, <clears throat> every verse, and that's what we are going to do this morning. And so we're going to dig into this text. Martin Luther, a great German theologian, talked about Bible study one time. And here's what he said. He said, I study my Bible like I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree so that the ripest may fall. And then I shake each limb. And when I've shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. And then I look under every leaf. I search the Bible as a whole like shaking the whole tree. And then I shake every limb, studying book after book. And then I shake every branch, giving attention to the chapters. And then I shake every twig or a careful study of the paragraphs and sentences and words and their meetings. It's a great advice when you want to study the Bible is to, to shake the whole tree, right? To see the whole overview of the Bible and then to get to branches and twigs and start looking under them and start trying to find those apples. When we turn to our text this morning though, it seems as if every leaf you, you overturn, all of a sudden you find another difficulty or two or three, which to understand the text. In fact, Martin Luther, applying his uh, Bible study diligence to this text, said this. A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. Now, you got to catch that in light of who Martin Luther was. Martin Luther was like the bold reformer who knew it was right, who stood, who opposed all the Roman Catholic Church almost by himself. And here was a man, great, I mean, type A personality, is strong, here it is. And what he, if he says, I don't know just for certainty what Peter means, um, it's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. Well, I'm with Luther this morning. I don't know exactly for certainty what Peter means. I have ideas, but I'm telling you, I'm not certain about it at all. <clears throat> but don't despair this morning, because... There's still profit in these words, even if we aren't certain of the exact theological nuances found in the text. One last commentator gives us us, a perspective that gives us hope. I want to read him. Scott McKnight writes this. Few passages have so many themes and different ideas intertwined. And it's no wonder the commentators are shaking their heads in despair. But, here it is. The main point's not complex. Just as Peter, just as Jesus suffered as a righteous man was vindicated, so too, if the churches of Peter live righteously, as he exhorted them to, they will be vindicated and sit with Jesus in the presence of God. Right? The main point's not complex. Jesus suffered as a righteous man and he was ultimately vindicated, so also we need to suffer as righteous people and trust that someday we will be vindicated as well. Well, if you look carefully at our text this morning, it's sandwiched between Two identical statements. We start here in verse 17, where he says, Peter does, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right rather than for doing what's wrong. There's a thrust, right? Suffer righteously. The example comes in Christ. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ did. Christ is our example. We should suffer righteously. And then, as it says in chapter 4, verse 1, on the other side of our text this morning, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. <clears throat> Here it is. He suffered in the flesh. We should arm ourselves with the same purpose. We should suffer righteously, just as Jesus did. Just as Christ suffered unjustly, we are to follow in His steps. That's the main point of the passage. When you think about our lives as Christians or to follow our masters. Jesus suffered in the flesh, how ought we to expect anything different? As his suffering was undeserved, how ought we to expect anything different? And that's what verses nineteen through twenty two are. Their encouragement to follow Christ in this way. And and, and really, however you view the details of nineteen through twenty two, they, they teach that Jesus gained the victory, his victory is our victory. His vindication ultimately will mean our vindication. That's why my message this morning is entitled, Victory in Jesus. It's the main point. That's what we can't forget. Well, let me just read this text, starting in verse 19. After Christ was made alive in the Spirit, in which also, probably in the spiritual realm, He also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. Now, if you read that again, it comes out just like you read it the time before. And if you read again, it comes out just like the time before. <clears throat> it's just difficult. He he seems to bounce from one topic to another. In verse 19, he talks about the spirits. And then in verse 20, he brings up Noah. And then he starts talking about baptism in verse 21, which leads on to the resurrection. And finally, to the ascension of Jesus in verse 22. So, Christ is preaching and then Noah comes along and then you've got baptism and then you've got His resurrection, His ascension. And you say, what? What's He talking about here? Well, various theologians down through the history of the church have understood these words differently. Um, I think a best approach we look at this is just to mention some interpretations. So you've got some scope of what these things mean. My first point, some interpretations. I say some because they're but more than this, but I'm just kind of giving you the, the biggest the biggest heading here. Interpretation has basically fallen into two major categories in this text. The first category of interpretation understands that after the death of Jesus and before His ascension to heaven, Jesus went into Hades to preach to those who were disobedient during the days of Noah. Right? From this comes the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, He descended into Hades. Right? You think about what Apostle Creed said. He suffered on Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. And here would be what they describe the descent into Hades. Descent where the spirits are in prison, whoever they are. Now, this view has two sub views. One of these views sees Jesus preaching to demonic beings. That is Evil spirits, as it just says there, spirits. He went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison, and then the other view sees them as Peter, or Jesus preaching to people, disembodied spirits. That is those who have died and are awaiting the final judgment. Now among these views, all right, so we have Jesus because it just talks about his death in verse 18. And it talks about his descension here. <clears throat> Verse 19, eventually he's going to talk about his resurrection and ascension in 21 and 22. It's a natural progression here. So he's going to this place, wherever he is, he's preaching to these spirits or people. There's a question about what exactly he's preaching. Some say he's preaching the gospel to these people or spirits, as if there's a, another second chance after the grave for salvation. Others other words, would say he's simply proclaiming victory to those who had rejected His way. So when you put all these things together, there's lots of different combinations of different views. And sometimes it's interesting, your theological persuasion will push you one way or the other. There's a Roman Catholic flavor of interpretation which believes in purgatory. So they love this verse because it, well, he's talking to the people in purgatory. So the Roman Catholics say, There was, at the time of the Reformation, then a response away from that Catholic tendency to purgatory. And there were some Reformers that went along with Augustine into a different view. Deny that, which I'll explain here in a little bit. But it's because of a theological framework. There's a liberal flavor of interpretation which allows for people to have a second chance for salvation after they die. Because they're dead and Jesus is going to proclaim the Gospel. Do you still want to repent? Will you still refuse to repent or will you repent now? All right? That's the first category. Are you confused yet? Here's the second category. Second category has a different chronology. Rather than understanding verse 19 in the progression of death, descent, resurrection, ascension, this view understands verse 19 as to be describing the actions of Jesus of what took place in the days of Noah. So, in other words... When Noah was preaching, it was actually the Spirit of Christ within Noah that was preaching through him. And thus you believe in verse thus it comes in verse eighteen, he was made alive in the Spirit. That is in the spiritual realm, in this spiritual state of being in which Christ was, that's when he was preaching these spirits in prison. Who weren't in prison when they first were preached to, but then subsequently died, now they are in prison. And at first glance, that interpretation might seem a bit strange. However, the key to this, we'll look into this a little bit more deeply, is chapter 1, verse 11, where it speaks about the the prophets had the Spirit of Christ within them uh, predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And so in the same way, this view just simply says, well, if the Spirit of Christ in the prophets teaching them, the Spirit of Christ could equally have been in uh, Noah preaching to those people at his time, the disobedient days. All right? Two strains of teachings, some interpretations. Some say Jesus descended into Hades to preach to either angels or men who were in prison, whatever he preached. And then the other view here says that, well, it's not them that he preached, but he was back with Noah preaching to the people at the time of disobedience. Okay? Their interpretations. All right. let, me, let me come down to some key questions. That's my second point here, some key questions. There are lots of questions that can be asked about this text and you can go and you can try to figure out what it is, but there are really two questions which can help clarify the meaning of the words. And if you can definitively answer what you believe about these two questions, um, you'll basically land on what you believe about these, these verses. First question is this, who are the spirits in prison? Who are they? Some see this word spirits and just say, oh, angelic beings. I mean, after all, in verse 22, angels and authorities and powers speak about the angelic beings. But it's not necessarily the case that spirits mean angelic beings. It could easily refer to disembodied people. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7 says, The, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And there you see even a spirit returning to God, even apart from the body when Jesus died, he yielded up his spirit. His body was here, but his spirit was well, depending upon what you view about first Peter three, whether he was down preaching or whether he was in paradise or wherever. But you can have this spirit that doesn't necessarily have to mean demonic spirits. Now those who believe that these are spirits, look to the days of Peter. At that time there was a Jewish book circulating around the Jewish community entitled First Enoch. Have any of you heard of this book, First Enoch? Some of you have. You can read if you want. Um, he was around. It was kind of a, a theological book. And uh, Jude even quotes this book in Jude, verse 14. And in this book, there's mentioning of these sinning demons during the days of Noah. And Peter seems to allude to that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where he says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And there is even a link in Second Peter, chapter two verse five, with Noah, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So they say, well, there seems to be a link here, and in the book of First Enoch, there's a link of these things. Also, Jude seems to be saying the same thing in Jude verse six. He says, the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. So some would take these demons talking about being bound in prison and say this has got to be angelic spirits. That's okay. But you can't just take this word spirit and just say it has to be demonic beings because it could be men as well. And again, the context is what determines it. And so when you look at the context here, Peter speaks a little bit about these spirits. He says that they were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, though he helps define it here, it doesn't really help a whole lot. Because there are several threads of interpretation with who and what was exactly disobedient during the days of Noah. So turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. This passage is difficult. It's the one in First Peter. I'm not going to answer any questions. I'm probably going to raise questions for some of you. Some of you, like, I didn't even know this was a question. And next time you read through Genesis 6, maybe on January 2nd, if you read through the Bible next year, you're like, oh, that's what Steve was talking about. And I have no idea what this means. But at least you can kind of see a general flavor of what, what's happening here. Verse 1, Genesis 6. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward. when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Alright, now the big question here is who are the sons of God? There are many who believe these are demonic beings who came from the angelic realm to cohabitate with the human race. They went into the daughters of men, as it says in verse 4. It says in verse 2, they took wives for themselves. And as they went into the daughters of men, they formed a hybrid mongrel race of beings that are half angelic, half human. Respected Bible scholars believe this, okay? And thus the reason for the flood is ultimately to wipe out this mongrel race. Now those who take this view rely heavily upon the usage of the phrase sons of God, which is used in other portions of Scripture to refer to the angelic world, right? which, which may be right. And then you contrast the sons of God, right? These demons, angelic world, right? Who are going to sin the time of Noah, with the daughters of men. There seems to be some kind of differences between these two. And as one seems angelic and one seems human, then you see here at the end of verse four that these were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. It, it makes sense that an angelic human being would be mighty, powerful. Now, let me just say there are. There are difficulties with this view, which, by the way, I think yeah, it's, it's almost the majority view today, I would probably say, but I think there are some difficulties with this view. The greatest, I think, is the procreative abilities of demonic spirits. See, it's one thing for a demon to come looking like an angel of light, as it says in Second Corinthians that they do. I mean, you simply need to put on a mask and a costume of some type, and you appear to be an angel of light. Um... Even even wolves can put sheep's clothing on them and pass as us, us sheep. Listen, but it's another thing entirely for a demon to come with procreative ability. To come into the daughters of men to create life. That That's taking it beyond just putting a mask on of some type. There are many Bible scholars who believe that. I, I, don't. I, I don't. I don't think Genesis 6 is teaching this. Though, you need to know this because many people believe that he's preaching to the spirits in prison and tie it back here to Genesis 6 because it's the days of Noah. That's why we've gone into this. But I think Genesis 6 is clear why the flood came about. It's not because of angelic sin. It's because of human sin. Look at verse 5. The Lord looked, off. The wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's the sin of men that caused the flood. As verse 6 says, the Lord was sorry that He made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. He says in verse seven, "I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, creeping things, the birds of sky, for I am sorry that I have made them." And the thrust here isn't that it's angelic sin. The thrust here, obviously in Genesis six, is human sin. In fact, it's the sin of people that caused him to bring the flood. All right. Let's go back to First Peter. I do think that it helps to show that I think First Peter is probably talking about people. Though it might be talking about angels, it could be doing that. But when he describes these spirits in verse 20, they were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Here Peter describes God as waiting during the construction of the ark. You say, what's he waiting for? What, what's he waiting for? Who's he waiting for? I think He's waiting for people to repent of their sins. I don't think that God's waiting for angelic beings who cohabitated with men to be half angel, half men, to do anything because even their repentance, He's still going to wipe them out according to that view. I mean, if bearing children was possible, the damage had been done. There's no need to wait for repentance. God didn't have to be patient. He should wipe them out right now if that was His aim, to wipe out this angelic mongrel race. Repentance can't bring back the damage that was done. On the contrary, though, the patience of God can restore the damage done in human terms. Because God delights and welcomes in repentance. He waits for people to repent of their sins. Romans 2, verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing the kindness of God leads you to Repentance. See, it's, it's the kindness of God not to judge today that ought to lead many to repentance. Or as Peter says in Second Peter chapter nine, the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If this is you this morning, you're rebelling against the Lord. Know there's hope for your soul in the patience of God, and turn to Him today, a day in which He may be found. Trust in Christ to carry you through death and life and troubles and struggles to be with Him someday. That's the reason for the patience of God, waiting for men to repent. And so, uh, if I come down, I think that these spirits are, are men. But there are others who believe they're angelic beings. And because of the uncertainty of the text, they can teach that and that's fine with me. Second clarifying question, when did Christ preach to these spirits? The most natural thought of this text, I think, is that he preached to these spirits after he died. I mean, he, he talked about his death in verse 18. He's going to talk about his resurrection ascension. I think that's the most natural uh, way to see it. However, I would say that it is possible that Peter's referring to the days of Noah. In 2 Peter 2.5, Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. I mean, it makes sense he'd be. He's building this huge ark. Have you ever seen pictures of how big that ark is? Something like, I don't know, a hundred um, 100 train cars or something like that is how big it is. So he's building this thing, maybe 40 only, but he's building this thing. It's huge and gigantic. And people are going to say, what is that about? And he begins to preach to them and he begins to talk to them and he begins to explain to them about how this great flood is coming. And that's what he was, that's what Noah was, was doing. And I think when you couple that with first Peter one eleven and twelve, it says in First 1 Peter 1.11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them, these prophets were indicating, so he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, if you look here in verse 10, even as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of this grace were making careful searches and inquiries. So you can, you can imagine here what's happening is the Spirit of Christ within these prophets and... Um, He's, he's teaching them and telling them of the sufferings of Christ, the glory to follow. And they are earnestly, diligently seeking it out, trying to figure out, what did I just write? What was Christ saying through me? And they're trying to figure out how it is that Christ could suffer and how it is that He could enter glory. And they're trying to figure these things out because there's the Spirit of Christ within them. And I think that as the Spirit of Christ was right there with the prophets, it's very reasonable to assume that the Spirit of Christ also be in Noah. Preaching, as well. I mean, in fact, there's some sense that Christ even does that today through preachers of the gospel. Colossians three verse sixteen says, "Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you." And then, as you speak that word which dwells in you, it's really the Spirit of Christ which is speaking and preaching. I think that's what uh, Peter's probably getting at, even here in this this text. It's a little bit like, you know, this is, this is heavy. I need to. We need some a little relief for this. Um, Memorial Day weekend, we went camping. Um, some people went out Thursday. So we've noticed the, the Reeds are there and the Miltons are there and the Crouses are there the Hooks are there and maybe some others I forgot. Mitchells are there. So at least five families are there. And uh, some of them went out Thursday. They've been camping out there. Beautiful weather. It's been been wonderful. Uh, our plan all along was to go out there Friday. We spent Friday evening there. Came back Saturday to prepare for church here. Planning on going back again. And... Um, you guys know what the forecast is for today? Rain. <laughs> rain, rain, it's coming bad. So, okay, guys, I'm Noah going out there. It is interesting that we were last night looking at the looking at the forecast of this rain coming across and this big sheet. I was looking at weather.com and this big sheet of rain is coming across Iowa. And they had predicted last night that it was really going to start raining about six o'clock this morning. Um, but the patience of God is is waiting. Somehow the front was slowed down, and right now, as of church this morning, it was about three o'clock. The rain is going to hit, and and, uh, and and I see that it's going to be massive thunderstorms, right? Big red, severe weather, and I'm not sure we actually want to camp in that weather. I just might go and go to Memorial Day camp and say, the weather's wonderful, but but listen, it's coming and it's coming bad." we're going to pack up, and we put all our things in this white van, which you might call an ark, and we're putting all those things in there, and uh, the reets are diehards. If they pack up before tonight, I would be absolutely shocked. But I might be Noah and preaching to them, you better get out of here because things are getting pretty bad, and then I will drive off in my my ark once it starts to rain. Right? The, the day I enter into my van and drive away is when it's going to come down. So that's a little bit what Mo, what Noah was like. He was preaching of judgment coming and they were to repent. They were to pack up too. They were to get into the ark as well. Well, when it's all said and done, I think this view makes more sense personally When uh, when you look at this text. You might disagree. You might look at something else. I do think it makes most sense that The Spirit of Christ was preaching in Noah during those days, warning those people to repent before the judgment and destruction came. Now, there are difficulties. I mean, the whole chronology is difficult. Um, It is difficult to understand exactly how Christ was preaching through Noah. It's got its difficulties, but that's where I would land. And some of the reason I'd land is because of the context Throughout the entire epistle, Peter's message has been that of suffering. And and what does he say through suffering? What are you supposed to do? Live righteously through suffering. I mean, mean, consider chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander your evil doers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation though you're being slandered and though you're being persecuted, you walk righteously in that day and age. Such is the will of God. Chapter 2, verse 15. That by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Walk righteously, even when these foolish people are talking against you. Chapter 2, verse 20. If you do what it, it's right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Right? Doing right, suffering for it, patiently enduring it, that finds favor with God and that's where you're going to get your vindication. Three one. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Even if they're disobedient to the Word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of your wives. You walk righteously. And if you walk righteously, God will help you and preserve you through those times. Chapter 3, verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Evil is coming upon you, but you walk righteously. Chapter 3, verse 16. Keep a good conscience. So in the thing in which you're slandered, right, you're being slandered, but you keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they, they revile your good behavior in Christ, they will be put to shame. They see your good behavior. They revalue. you. But if you walk righteously, they'll be put to shame. It's better, chapter 3, verse 17, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right rather than doing what's wrong. I think about Noah. That is exactly what he did, right? He suffered for doing what's right. Now, we don't have clearly what was going on in the days of Noah. But I can only imagine the the wickedness of the people around him. It says in Genesis 6 9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. He walked with God. It makes sense it makes sense that Noah being a righteous man in a totally wicked community would have faced massive persecution from people making fun of him, making fun of the ark. And yet what did he do? He continued in his righteousness. Eventually he was saved from the wicked generation through the ark. And I think then bringing up Noah makes perfect example. One of the difficulties is he didn't say act like Noah, Okay. But Noah would have found resonance in their hearts. But if the text means that Christ went and pronounced victory over the demonic world or victory over sinful people, it's difficult to understand why, why he would bring up Noah here and why is it that Christ only preached to these people who are disobedient in Noah's day. I mean, there are many people, many demons who thought, sought to, to thwart Um, the activity of of Christ, the activity of God? Why is it just these few people in the days of Noah that Christ went to preach to or proclaim proclamation to? Down through the ages, there have been many enemies of God waiting their final judgment. Why just speak to these limited few? All right. Some interpretations, some questions. Now, let's get to some application. All right. First one, Comes out of um, this example of Noah. I just say live like Noah. Live like Noah. I think a man who's surrounded by wickedness yet walking righteously is one to be modeled. You know Wayne Grudem, his commentary on First Peter. You know if you're looking to get a commentary on First Peter, this is the best one to get, just hands down. It is a wonderful little commentary. And uh, he, I want to quote him here at length because he speaks a lot about the example of. Noah and how that would have been encouraging to the people of, of Peter's day. So let me just read some of this for you. <clears throat> he gives, uh, I think it's six reasons, yeah. Six comparisons between Noah and the people in the day of Peter. Noah was a small minority of believers surrounded by a group of hostile unbelievers who were perhaps even persecuting him. The readers are also a small minority who are surrounded by hostile unbelievers who make a threat of persecution very real. Right? Like chapter 4, verse 4. Right? And this is a surprise you do not run with them into the excess of dissipation and they malign you. You're not walking righteously with them and so they're maligning you. A second observation. Noah was righteous. As I read earlier, Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous. Similar difficult situation. Third, Noah witnessed boldly to unbelievers around him, preaching repentance and warning of judgment soon to come. Similarly, Peter exhorts his readers not to fear, but to witness boldly. Chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you. Right? Be bold, be ready to be able to speak. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9. We should be about proclaiming the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. I'm going to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's why I'm walking this way, just like Noah. And bear witness boldly, even in suffering, if it's necessary, in order to bring others to God, just as Christ was willing to endure suffering to bring us to God. Peter also sounds a clear warning of judgment to come. It's coming. Chapter 4, verse 5, next week, right? The Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. that Though they are judged as fleshless men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Judgment's coming. Which makes the reader's situation prior to judgment similar to that of Noah. Fourth observation. Christ, though He was unseen in a spiritual realm, was preaching through Noah to the unbelievers around Him. Similarly, Christ is working in an unseen spiritual way in the lives and hearts of Peter's readers. Thus, Peter, by implication, is reminding his readers that if Christ was preaching through Noah, He is certainly also preaching through them as they bear witness to the unbelievers around them. You just, you just think about just even living. We'll get to chapter 4, verse 11 at some point where it says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And whoever serves is to do so by the strength which God supplies. Right? There's Christ within us serving and speaking according to the power of Christ. Uh, fifth reason. In the time of Noah, God patiently awaited repentance from unbelievers, but finally did bring judgment. Similarly, at the time of Peter's writing, God is patiently waiting repentance from unbelievers. But He will certainly bring judgment upon the unrepentant. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. Finally, 6th, Noah was rescued with a few others. Chapter 3, verse 20. Similarly, Peter reminds his readers that they too will be saved, even if their numbers are few, for Christ has certainly triumphed verse 22 and they will share in his triumph as well. And that is really ultimately the main point of this passage with triumph through Christ. But let's be imitators of Noah. Let's imitate him. Let's live like him. Second point of application, let's be baptized. Let's be baptized. Now many of this easy application. I've already been baptized. Great. Wonderful but it may be the case of others of you that you've not been baptized. And if that's your case, verse 20, 21, points out really the the importance of baptism. Look at verse verse 21. Corresponding to that, right? Corresponding to the the ark and the saving of Noah. Corresponding to that in which eight persons were saved, brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that whole reality baptism now saves you. you. Can hear that? Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there's some who take this and say, "Ah, oh, the physical act of baptism saves you." Right? You get dunked into the water, you're going to be saved. That's what some people say. Those who say this simply take Peter's words at face value. What does he say? He says, baptism saves you. Look at this. Do you believe the Bible? Look what the Bible says. See, if you want to be saved, you need to be baptized. But if you look carefully at what Peter says, he quickly clarifies his statement about baptism. Look look what he says. Immediately after saying baptism now saves you, he's quick to point out that it's not the water that saves you. It's not the right. It's not getting wet. It's not this cleansing water that saves you. He says this. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So even as it says baptism saves you, it shows He's not talking about the washing which saves. Rather, what is it that saves? It says this appeal to God for a good conscience. Now again, we've just opened up another leaf. This word appeal. Some of your translations say it differently. Some of your translations say... Um, not appeal, but they say a pledge of a good conscience toward God. Some of your translations say the answer of a good conscience before God. So you've got appeal, you've got pledge, you've got answer. And you say, what does this mean? Well, the confusion comes about because this is the only time in the whole New Testament this word is ever used. Though the related noun, or the related verb rather, is used in a handful of occasions. So it's not like we're totally in the dark, but there is... Some question about what it means, this idea of appealing has the idea of, of of crying out to God of of pleading with God, like Romans ten, nine and ten, if you confess in your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you 'll be saved, and then Paul explains how is it you 're saved He says with a heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness, but with a mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. baptism says you how the appeal to God the the confessing with your mouth, the appealing there. The idea of pledge or answer is best understood to be like those who take their marriage vows. Pastor is administrating a marriage and says, Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And what does the husband say? I do. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And she says, I do. There's the pledge, there's the answer to the question that was being asked. I do pledging their allegiance toward one another. And in some measure, these are present in the baptism ceremonies. So, as so one stands in the water of, of baptism, he or she expresses his, or her faith and trust in God. And that's what it's about. Appealing to God. Expressing their commitment to follow the Lord all their days. Says, I'm, I'm Christ now. I'm going to follow Him. He is my leader, my righteous one. At Rock Valley Bible Church, we ask those who are being baptized to share their testimony. How is it you come to Christ? Because there's got to be this appeal in baptism. There's got to be this pledge. There's got to be this affirmation. There's some kind of uh, something taking place here. <laughs> Whatever it is. And you can look at all these things. I think in some sense they're talking about the same thing. And I always encourage those who are preparing for baptism to, to have a three-part outline. Talk first about what you were like before you were saved. Talk about how it is that God saved you. Talk about how it is you've changed since then. It's a real... You can even think about that. You're sharing testimony with other people. Talk about what you used to be like. Talk about how God changed you, what you're believing in Christ, what that means, and talk about what it means today. Past, present, future. Real easy. And in so doing, those being baptized has an opportunity to speak to everyone present of the Lord's working in their life as they... Make this appeal to God, this, this pledge to God for a good conscience. God, I desire to live rightly before you. The only way, by the way, you can ever have a good conscience living before God is to know complete forgiveness of sins. If you don't know complete forgiveness of sins, your conscience is going to gnaw on you all the time. And, and so that's why I think even here's a, the uh, indirect reference here of the glories of the absolute forgiveness in the gospel for a good conscience is what you need. But those being baptized, expressing their appeal, their pledge and following Him. And that's what baptism is. It's expression of your appeal, a commitment to follow the Lord. And that's why we don't baptize infants at Rock Valley Bible Church. They can't give this pledge or appeal. It doesn't make sense. They can't do it. Well, if you're here this morning, if trusted Christ, haven't been baptized, come talk to me. would love to... To talk to you about that and perhaps see you being baptized last summer we had a, a baptism service at Olson Lake uh, we called ahead it was a great time we called ahead to the the lake and um we reserved a, a spot over on the lake kind of like a third of the section was just for us how many of you were there a lot it was a great time wasn't it and uh, just had a spot over there and um You know, we had people give their testimony of Christ and then we immersed them in water. It was a baptizing means, right? To baptize them in water, immerse them, dunk them, sink them. And that's what was done based upon their appeal to God, their confession of faith. And uh, what's really great about that is that is really what took place in the New Testament. Uh, In the New Testament, they didn't have church buildings with baptistries where you just speak to fellow church people. They went out to the rivers and they went out to lakes and they went out wherever it would be boldly proclaiming to anybody and that's what we did and that's what we plan on doing again this summer Um, i've talked to several about being baptized and uh, we'll see how many we have this summer even if we have only one we will have a a service there and it's a great opportunity to have these people who are expecting to have a day out at the lake and to see the work of god and it was interesting even last year it led directly to an opportunity to preach the gospel so we did that there. You remember that woman that was standing there, Yvonne? She was talking to Yvonne and, and asking some questions. And then I came over and just clearly laid out everything that was taking place in the Gospel. We invited her to church. We called her to repent. And she said, well, I think this would be really good for my grandchildren. Well, maybe that would be interesting. <laughs> no, it's good for you. just <laughs> for your grandchildren. But there it was a, an opportunity to be out bold and to do something and to get people. And we would love to see that take place again. So if you're interested in being baptized, come talk to me. It is an application, I think, of this text. Notice the severity of baptism saves you. Don't, don't, just, don't just cast that off and say, Baptism, no, it doesn't really mean that. No, there is something here where the, the baptism is, is important. In fact, if you look in the early church, when Peter preached, often he preached, Repent and be baptized. Acts 2, verse 38. Now, we know that the baptism isn't necessarily the uh, most uh, the essential thing. Because he said later in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent and return to God. There's no mention of baptism there. But often the Ethiopian eunuch, when he came to faith in Christ, he says, I need to be baptized. Because it was so synonymous right there. And every time you see in the Acts, it's always people are believing and they're baptized. Uh, the Philippian jailer, he believed and was baptized. And uh, you just see that as the pattern. You believe and you're baptized. You believe and you're baptized. Ethiopian eunuch believed and he was baptized. That's how it always is. It is interesting also when... Uh, when Jesus gave instructions to Paul, you know I can't find it here. It's off the top of my head somewhere. He told him to arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. Is is what he said? I forget. It's in chapter 26, I think. I'll I'll find it another day. I'll find it another time. But there he's just telling. Just baptism is was on the heart of the people in the early first century. And when they often talked about baptism, it meant conversion. When Jesus gave the uh, sermon, the, the great commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, I think it means converting them, seeing them come to Christ, seeing them express that in baptism. So don't minimize baptism. In the early church, it was unknown to have a, an unbaptized believer. It's just unknown because baptism was so quick and was so synonymous. Today we have an unbaptized church. It's quite frankly what we have. And we need to do what we can to restore that. So if you've not been baptized, be baptized. Third point of application is my last point of application. Know the victory. This comes in verse 21, very last phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does that have to do with victory? Well, if you look back in verse 20, when Peter's talking about Noah, he says the means of salvation was through the ark. The waters of judgment were coming upon Him. They're flooding the earth, and it was in the ark. It was through the ark it was brought through the waters. And so likewise, now the comparison with baptism comes here in verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And then in most of your translations, there's a big dash after that. In In the New American Standard, the dash then picks up at the end of verse 21, which I'm not sure any other verses do, but it is the implication... Baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Christ. So ultimately, your appeal isn't, isn't the means of your salvation. The means is ultimately the resurrection. That's what saves you, ultimately, in the greatest sense of the word. In other words, just as Noah and his wife, his three sons were brought through the waters of judgment by the agency of the ark... So also we're brought through the fiery trials of life and saved from death and hell through the agency of the resurrection of Christ. I think that's the comparison he's making here in verse 21. The resurrection of Christ brings salvation to us and right there is the victory. We can have troubles and hardships, distress of all types going on around us, but through the resurrection of Christ, that's where we are guaranteed to win. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In the resurrected Christ. That's where the victory comes. And in verse 22, we see Jesus seated on the victory stand. We're going to see the Olympics coming this fall. Starting 8-8-08. Just in case you need to remember when that is. August 8-08 is when the Olympics are going to start. And you're going to see many people, if you choose to watch them. We're planning on watching some of the Olympics kind of do a fun thing every night. But uh, you'll see these people standing on the stands. Right up, I'm the winner, I'm the victor. And in some sense, that's what God has done with Christ. Raising it up to the victory stand, the right hand of God. It's a place of authority, it's a place of power, and we even see that. He raised Him, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Christ obtained the victory, that's what it's about. And it's right here that the application of victory comes regardless. Whatever you view about the details of these verses, of these difficult matters, 19 and 20, it all comes down to this. If you take the view that Jesus was in Hades proclaiming victory in the day between His death and His resurrection, or if you view that Jesus was preaching through Noah during the days before the flood, the result is still the same here in verse 22. as we see Jesus as the high and exalted ruler. as the one who is reigning over all, and us by union in Him we will rule and reign forever as well. We will be saved throughout the Bible, throughout the whole New Testament, is used of Christ. It's picked up really from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's the most quoted Psalm in all the New Testament. It's quoted here in First Peter. It's quoted in Ephesians 1. It's quoted in Philippians 2. It's quoted several times throughout the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, chapter 10, chapter 12. We've got all those, we don't have time, but just to say that Christ is high and exalted and He has the victory. And as we know the victory, we'll be equipped then to live rightly in the midst of our sufferings. Which is Peter's point. I mean, how can say this? If you knew you are going to win, isn't it easy to keep playing? It is, isn't it? Like kids, right? Suppose, suppose you're playing a game with your your brother or sister, right? Whatever, Monopoly, and you start amassing a bunch of hotels and a bunch of properties and a bunch of houses, and uh, you're doing pretty well, and your brother's only got like a few of them, or your sister's doing a few of them. Who wants to keep playing? <laughs> Does the one who's losing want to just keep getting pounded? What happens? No, they want to quit. Oh, I think we're done now. No, let's keep playing. No, I think we're done. No, let's keep playing, right? Isn't that how it works? That's how it always works. And if you know you're going to win, you're going to want to keep playing. And so likewise here, if you know that Christ has proclaimed the victory and if He is high and exalted, lifted up, and we are on His team and we have won the victory, you are going to want to keep playing. And wanting to keep playing, in Peter's mind, is living righteously through sufferings, right? That's Peter's point. So what's going to help you suffer in the flesh well is to know of your ultimate victory that you have. And just as Jesus gained the victory, so too we will gain the victory as well. There's my attempt. I'm glad I'm done. We'll get to chapter 4 next week. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would take these words, however feeble, however difficult, however intellectual, however theological, I pray You'd press home at least these applications to us that we would live like Noah. Teach us, God, to be a Noah. And God, secondly, I pray that for those who haven't been baptized, convict their heart. They need to be baptized. Lord, that we might have a a glorious time this summer again at Olson Lake, rejoicing Your goodness, Your work among us. And God, I finally pray that this point of application of knowing the victory would be St. deep into our hearts. That You would give us a a spirit of wisdom and a, a revelation in the knowledge of Him. God, that we would know what is the hope of Your calling. That we would know what is surpassing greatness of Your power towards us who believe. The power that brought Christ up from the dead and raised Him gloriously seated above every rule and authority and power in the heavenly places. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That we would place our faith and trust in that to get us through the trials and difficulties of life. So help us, O Lord, strengthen us by this text to suffer well, ultimately, Lord, for Your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.